0: Infinite Horrors
1: Podcast. I would describe the mindset I would suggest going into the original version of Suspiria is a really cool visual accompaniment to a really good album by Goblin.
2: Let it ride over you. Maya, so yeah, it's great to hear from you. We haven't talked in a little bit. Yeah. Up on what you've been into the past month and a bit.
1: I know for both of us and anyone listening, we've been sort of missing in action for several months now, it feels yeah. like, which is not great.
2: No, nah, <laughs> not great. Unfortunately,
1: <laughs> life comes first.
2: Yeah, precisely.
1: Well, The big thing is, you know, I took medical leave from work, but then ended up needing to make revisions on a manuscript. So I just resubmitted that for publication. So hopefully that goes through its second round of review really quickly and gets published pretty soon. And then I caught COVID for the first time. So I was stuck in bed going a little bit cabin fever crazy for 10 years. You
2: made it a really long time without catching it. i I
1: know i'm so proud of myself
2: seriously you're one of the few people i know that hasn't well you know now you've gotten it but uh most people i know have so yeah well done it's It's inevitable
1: at this point right but what about you what have you been up to how's life
2: life's interesting um (laughs) bit of oh yeah bit of ups and downs um
1: also before sorry to interrupt but before i forget Uh, For anyone listening, Sam and I met in person for the first time since like the last time we recorded an episode.
2: Oh, it was delightful. That was so fun. It was so good to meet you and your friends in person. Yeah,
1: that was so much fun.
2: That was great. Went to some real trashy bar in West Hollywood. That was actually Hollywood proper. That was a funny place. The bar we went to afterwards was great. The one where, uh, shoot, the one we were walking around looking for for a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: No, that was that was
2: nice. Yeah, it's a nice little spot. <laughs> it was delightful. It was great to see you in person. But yeah, you know, life's been funny. You know, family shit coming up, and that derailed my life for a little bit. But back on the tracks now, and you know, pressing forward. Things are good. Ready to talk about witchcraft? That's for fucking sure.
1: I was just gonna say things weren't so good in nineteen seventy seven. Oh we had gosh. we had a little bit of a political upheaval, just a, just a little one. Nothing too crazy. It's not like thirty people were killed over the span of like twenty years or anything.
2: <laughs> wow! I mean, so we're we're talking like East and West Berlin, right?
1: Yeah, I yeah. I think we should probably start with the original version of our topic of the day, which is Suspiria. But, oh man, I can't wait to get into the new one. Yeah, likewise. I
2: mean, I'm way more familiar with the older one. I watched the new one, obviously, for this show. It was my second time watching the new one, and um, I have thoughts.
1: (laughs) I'm very ambivalent about it. They tried, really, like this is, I know I have this criticism for a lot of things, but... There were a lot of really good ideas there. I think they just tried to do too much and therefore yeah. didn't get to like fully express some of these like really, really cool ideas.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's it, it definitely took some huge swings, you know, because it is, you know, I think most people would define it as a remake, but the director himself said it was more of a cover than a remake, which I think is an interesting uh, distinction.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a remake. I would just say it's a movie that takes the bare bones idea of the original because they it's really different
2: very derry argento is asked about it and he was like well if it's a shot for shot remake why would you need to do that the original's just fine and if you're gonna make and change it up a little bit why call it suspiria so that's an interesting thing to think about when we uh get into the remake or cover or what have you.
1: Well, I think the the thing here is that they're both being inspired by the same concept. But you have to remember, like, actually, this is great. We can talk a little bit about Dario Argento and his past, right? Because
2: Suspiria
1: is actually part of a trilogy, which is based off of uh, the work of Thomas De Quincey uh, talking about the three mothers.
2: Can you explain who Thomas De Quincey is? Just for those who...
1: I can. Thomas De Quincey was... An English writer and essayist, a little bit more on the privileged side of things, did a lot of drugs. That's, that's the main thing that we need to know about him here. He, he really enjoyed drugs and hallucinogens, and I think he's worked as uh, like initially a journalist, and then he basically went on to mainly do essays. I think The Confessions of an English Opium Eater was his big one.
2: Whoa, I love that title.
1: And then, of course, the one that we're all going to talk about, which is Suspira de Profundus, Mm -hmm. which is his essays essentially about his dreamlike states and reflecting on images that have come to him. And in this case, a lot of Greco-Roman mythology Mm -hmm. and these mothers. And I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second, but... That's really all you need to know about him. He doesn't have a grand story or anything. It's just, these were very influential essays. Cool. Just just for reference. Right, right. I can get into a little bit about the essays themselves. Suspiria de profundis means size from the depths. It's essentially a set of essays that examines memory as influenced by the hallucinogens he took through poetry and impassioned prose. And he mainly talks about Lavana and the Ladies of Sorrow, which are the mothers. Lavana is the Roman goddess of childbirth from the Latin to raise aloft, And she would come to him in his dreams. If you read the actual essays, they're quite interesting. And they're very lofty. They're very self-aggrandizing, you know, but you know, it's a British essayist who takes a lot of drugs. What do you expect? Right. And she uh, essentially taught him about human experience. And he was talking about how she informs emotional development, and because of that, she confers with the agents of grief, who are the Sorrows, three in number, sisters. So we have three sisters, mm. which we can connect to, as Thomas De Quincey does, the three graces, the muses, of like the original muses, the furies, right. the fates. All of these, like, trinities.
2: Lots of threes, he yeah.
1: really He really leans heavily on Greco roman history and, and stories, and he calls them the sublime goddesses and the gracious ladies, specifically Our Ladies of Sorrow. And I can read some excerpts that I took out.
0: Please do. Yeah. From
1: the essays. Our Ladies of Sorrow, I know them thoroughly, and have walked in all their kingdoms. Three sisters they are, of one mysterious household, and their paths are wide apart, but of their dominion there is no end. Then I saw them often, conversing with Lavana and sometimes about myself. Do they talk then? Oh no, mighty phantoms, like these disdain the infirmities of language. They may utter voices through the organs of man when they dwell in human hearts, but amongst themselves there is no voice nor sound. Eternal silence reigns in their kingdoms. They spoke not, as they talked with Levana. They whispered not, they sang not, though oftentimes methought they might have sung, for I upon earth had heard their dulcimer and organ. Like God, whose servants they are, they utter their pleasure not by sounds that perish or by words that go astray, but by signs in heaven, by changes on earth, by pulses in secret rivers, heraldries painted on darkness and hieroglyphics written on tablets of the brain. They wheeled in mazes. I spelt the steps. They telegraphed from afar. I read the signals. They conspired together, and on the mirrors of darkness, my eye traced the plots. Theirs were the symbols. Mine are the words." Yeah, snapping to that. That was great. (laughs) Yeah, very intense. The sense I get is that the way he tries to describe them is they're figures of influence that are ever present in the human condition. Mm. And he's trying to essentially personify them, which is really interesting. And he names them. We have Mater Lacmarum, our Lady of Tears, who is the oldest, a great presence in power, and wears a crown. She's the only one that wears a crown. Mm -hmm. And she is honored with the title Madonna. Then we have Mater Suspiriorum, the Lady of Sighs, who is the second sister, who is very still and is not crowned. And then we have Mater Tenebrarum, which is the sister of darkness, who is the third sister and rarely present. But she does not ask permission to enter merely storms through barriers.
2: Oh, love that. Yeah, that's that's the way I like it.
1: It's very clearly a poetic take on the negative emotions that we all feel, right? The idea that darkness, death, and grief would all just storm through and not really care about what you're feeling, not really care about your situation because it is just a force of nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll try not to like monopolize this time as much in a second, but the first sister essentially talks to the second sister in his dreams. Talking about like how she influences Thomas De Quincey. Mm. and it's lo, here is he whom in childhood I dedicated to my altars. There is he that once I made my darling, him I led astray, him I beguiled, and from heaven I stole away his young heart to mine. Though me did he become idolatrous, and through me it was by languishing desires that he worshipped the worm and prayed to the wormy grave. Holy was the grave to him. "'Lovely was its darkness, saintly its corruption. "'Him, this young idolater, I have seasoned for thee, "'dear gentle sister of sighs. "'Do thou take him now to thy heart "'and season him for our dreadful sister? "'And thou,' turning to the motto Tenebrarum, "'she said, wicked sister, that temptest and hatest, "'do thou take him from her? "'See that thy scepter lie heavy on his head. "'Suffer not woman and her tenderness "'to sit near him in the darkness.' banish the frailties of hope, wither the relenting of love, scorch the fountain of tears, curse him as only thou canst curse. So shall he be accomplished in the furnace. So shall he see the things that ought not to be seen, sights that are abominable and secrets that are unutterable. So shall he read the elder truths, sad truths, grand truths, fearful truths, so shall he rise again before he dies and so shall our commission be accomplished which from God we had to plague his heart until we had unfolded the capacities of his spirit. Wonderful. Honestly, I just wanted whatever kind of drugs he was on cuz Yeah, that sounds those great. Are great yeah.
2: <laughs> so how would we tie what you've just read into this first movie? of his Three Mothers trilogy, Suspiria.
1: I'll talk a little bit about Dario Argento's trilogy in a second, but generally speaking, I do think that the newer one was a bit more inspired by the original essays okay. than Argento's. But Dario Argento, who, you know, I'm sure everyone knows who he is, but he's an Italian director who specializes in horror and giallo movies, and Suspiria is a part of the Three Mothers trilogy, Suspiria Inferno, Mother of Tears. And the idea is that these three mothers are based off of the three mothers from Suspiria de Profundus. And it's three witches that reside in different modern cities. So Inferno takes place in New York City and dives a little bit more into the three mothers because they talk a little bit more about the basis of the lore of the characters mm-hmm. in the book that like the character gets. But essentially, All of the mothers, or in this case, Argento portrays them all as witches, live in homes built for them by the alchemist. So they all have similar supernatural deaths that culminate in a final protagonist escaping these buildings, and then the buildings crumbling around them as they die because they're tied to the buildings.
2: Oh, love that. Yeah.
1: The Mother of Tears was like the newest one, and it takes place in Rome, and... It's more of like a white versus black magic type story.
2: Mm. I haven't seen Mother of Tears.
1: I tried watching it and I didn't really like it, if I'm honest. (laughs) So I stopped watching it. I like Inferno.
2: Yeah, I saw Inferno a long time ago. So I'd be hard pressed to bring up much about it. But I have seen it and I do remember liking it. It's funny, there's such a huge gear gap between Mother of Tears and Inferno, it's like oh yeah, nearly 30 years for him to complete this trilogy, which is, uh, damn. <laughs> I mean, there's always a whole bunch of different reasons why maybe Inferno didn't do so well and, and uh, he had a hard time getting financing, or maybe he just didn't have the idea set in stone in his head yet. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to me that there was like a three-year gap in between Speria and Inferno and then a whole... Twenty-seven, nearly three decades for him to wrap this up. Interesting. Do you want to jump into Suspiria Start like getting into the nitty-gritty of this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, we can give you a brief synopsis. Because it is Dario Argento, it's more of an art piece than a coherent storyline is the best way I can describe it. That's pretty much
2: what I'd say too. Yeah, it's not. It's not.
1: Yeah, you don't watch it for the plot. It's Dario Argento. You watch it because it's pretty and it sounds cool.
2: Right. Oh man, what a great soundtrack. We'll get into that in a little bit.
1: We'll get into it. (laughs) I fucking love them. Goblin was touring with the soundtrack and I was mad because I couldn't get tickets. I know.
2: I was just this past year. They were doing like, I know uh, here in LA they'd show Suspiria with Goblin like playing along in like the orchestra section, which...
1: I would kill a man for those tickets.
2: (laughs) Uh, Good for them that they're still touring. (laughs) I don't
1: know. Dude, they're so cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, they've done other really good movies, too, right?
1: Their breakout was the first movie that they worked on with um, Dario Gento, Deep Red. Right. Uh, So Dario Gento directed and co-wrote the movie Deep Red in 1975. And it is considered one of the best giallo movies generally in the film community. Everybody's like, no, that's what we mean when we mean that's a good giallo film. Uh And it heavily influenced Carpenter's Halloween. You know, so like very important movie. But essentially what happened for that movie, Dario Argento wanted to get Deep Purple or Pink Floyd or another big rock band with like that type of sound to do the music for it. And instead, one of the producers or uh, some other person involved in the production was like, look, I actually have a record company. Listen to this local band in Rome. I think you'll really like them. It ended up being Claudio uh, Simonetti and Goblin. And I think initially they were called Oliver based off of Oliver Twist. <laughs> and then they changed their name to Goblin, which is much better for like the, the tone of everything and i think they only had like three weeks or something to put together an entire score for this for deep red but they did it and darajan was like this is great and it was like wildly popular they sold like four million records or some shit fantastic composers and then clearly were good enough to make the soundtrack for uh suspiria as well Mm -hmm. which is actually really cool they brought in like proper moog synthesizers but because nobody knew how to play them they had to like bring in an additional uh composer who understood the synth Uh they brought in organs they brought in like a ton of percussion from all over the world and then like a mini moog as well it was a very pioneering synth soundtrack because that wasn't like popular at the time like it was just beginning to happen in the 70s like you have the the alternative music section with, you know, Two Tubeway Army and like Roxy Music, who are all doing synth stuff and like Craftbook and all of that, right? But not really anything in film to no. a really grand extent. I think A Clockwork Orange was one of the only other film scores that were like heavily utilizing synths at the time. Mm. So they were really pushing this inhuman, otherworldly sound and it works, man. It's such a good soundtrack. And actually, they composed it to the final cut of the movie. So everything is in response to something happening in Darth Argento's final cut.
2: Oh, that's incredible. I love that. Um, right? Yeah.
1: Which is why it fits so fucking well.
2: Uh, it's so good. Very cool. I didn't know that. That's very cool. So why don't we break into what happens in this story? So essentially, it's all about a coven that operates. Uh, as Maya said, it's this... Triumvirate of witches that have three buildings across the world. Suspiria takes place in the building in East Germany. Although I guess in the original Suspiria, do they differentiate? I mean, it would be East Germany, but do they do they specify that, or is that just in the?
1: They give an actual city name. I forget which one it is.
2: Yeah, but the political backdrop is not really present in the original movie whatsoever. It's Freiburg. Freiburg. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's in the very southwest corner.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, so this coven that operates in Germany, would you call it a front? (laughs) But it's not really a front, but it's a ballet school. And our entrance into this ballet school is our protagonist, Susie, played by Jessica Harper. And she's a ballet student that enters this school and gives us an inside look into all the kind of weird colorful, trippy shit that's going on inside. So, like you said earlier, the plot's a little fuzzy. (laughs) You know, it's not necessarily the most important thing that's going on in this movie. I mean, the cinematography is mind-blowing and, like, kaleidoscopic, along with, like, again, the incredible soundtrack we were just talking about. It's a really surreal, strange experience this movie.
1: I would kind of liken it to a ballet, right? You have Mm. a heavy emphasis on music and visual directing and like photographic styling, but the plot isn't being directly told to you, right? It's being impressed upon you. Right. So quite fortuitous that everything's taking place in a ballet school, but essentially Susie Banyan gets the chance of a lifetime to audition to be a part of this very well-known ballet school run by Helena Marcos, who is never really seen. And she gets there and is immediately like affected by the building and the people. Right. And a lot of, we, we see a lot of like very weird happenings and like sudden attacks that we can't really see. We see previous girls like, who were at this uh, school going crazy and going missing.
2: Thing out the school is screaming.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I went to a summer camp once and the first day, like these two kids got in a fight and it, it was horrible. But I imagine Susie's walking in this situation and I'm like, what the fuck is this?
1: Essentially, the way that Dario Argento has set this up and shot it has a very intentional purpose and it's to give us the same perspective as Susie throughout the movie, right? We learn about things from her perspective. We learn about them at the same time as her and we're at the same level of confusion as she is The entire time. So when we see people running through the woods, we see it from a camera angle that is her perspective. When we see and hear things that are weird and crazy, there are cuts and there are shots that emphasize the madness and do not tell us what's happening. They just add to the confusion. And we're like basically greatly made to sympathize with the main character. Mm -hmm. And throughout this, we essentially follow her as she learns. That the dance instructors, based off of what her roommate says, go somewhere at night. They never leave the actual dance studio. They just go somewhere in the building. And she's piecing together a bunch of things that a bunch of missing girls have said. And she follows them and observes the fact that they're actually a coven of witches and are actively preying upon the girls who live and dance there. And essentially it culminates with her finding Helena Marcos, who is basically shown to be the mother of size, like Mother Suspiria. Mm-hmm. And she is accosted with images of her dead friends coming to kill her and like has to fight this witch through like some psychological battle and then physically defeats her. And then again, we see the final girl protagonist get out of this building as it crumbles around this witch, because again, the buildings and the witches are all tied together. Right. So not like the most complex plot, doesn't really get into a lot, which leads to a very stark contrast for everything that the one in 2018 really wanted to do, which we can also get into because the the plot is a little bit different and there's a lot more socio-political context that is set up. Right. So if you'd like to introduce the 2018 movie a little bit. Sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, the 2018 movie is directed by Luca Guadagnino. my Italian pronunciation. <laughs> it's not the best. Do you know the right way to pronounce that?
1: I, I think it's Guadaguino. I don't know. I'm bad at it, too. <laughs> it's, it's that G-N,
2: like that Nia sound.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we are so sorry, Luca.
2: Yeah. Sorry, Luca. I, I know my, my fat, silly, stupid American tongue. He's an Italian director. He's done a few movies. I haven't seen many of his other movies. The protagonists. Melissa P call Oh, well I mean I think most people would know him by the movie Call Me by Your Name with that cannibal army hammer and the little boy Timothy Chalamet. But Desperia was his next movie after that and when he was remaking this movie, he didn't want it to be so much as a remake as a cover. How we interpret that the word choice there is interesting so he's he's pretty much taking the feelings and the themes and the very loose plot of the original movie and making this new thing that when compared to the first movie they're just very different off the bat right like the first movie is more of a product of it's time for this but it's like a little campy it's like half the running time this 2018 version is a full two hours and thirty minutes, almost uh, maybe a little, yeah. maybe a little more. And the first movie, I think, is a clean ninety minutes, if even.
1: Well, it's a, it's a much simpler idea, and again, it's an Argento movie, so you're really there to be sensorily catered to, right? Not like so much like
2: it's like that Thomas De Quincey kind of like drug trip that first movie with all the colors and all the weirdness happening and I can see yeah, you just have
1: to give yourself to it to enjoy it you know
2: exactly. let it ride over you <laughs> um, I'm
1: actually not super familiar with the writer for the new one David Kazganich. I have not heard of any other thing that this person has done um I am somewhat impressed by what they were able to weave in again I think they bit off more than they could chew I think this Is one of those ideas where you want to put a paragraph symbol in like a just block of text, right? And just be like, hey, you have 16 ideas that you're trying to interweave. It's getting a little bit much. Maybe write two movies.
2: Yeah. A lot of cooks in this kitchen. And I think that's kind of one of the main criticisms of this movie from what I was reading is that you kind of get the sense, I mean, and I almost got this sense, is that like when someone's trying to seem smart or trying and seem really interesting or layered or deep, you know, the political backdrop of this movie.
1: It is weird, though, because they've clearly moved the setting to... Berlin, because you yeah. can see the Berlin Wall. Right. It does make sense to me, though, because it's still taking place in 1977. Right. They've just taken the political aspects of what's happening in Germany in 1977, which I, I think is, you know, an interesting concept. I just think it's a lot when you're also trying to talk about, like, divine femininity and, like, feminine sexuality and, right. like, gendered violence right. and reclaiming these things and then the trauma of World War II... And the question of how do you uh, forgive people who have contributed to trauma in a generational sense and like all these things. So it's a lot to try to fit into this movie. Yeah, It also wasn't that effective, I don't think. I think some of the choices for how characters were, I think a lot of casting choices also hurt it.
2: Interesting. Uh, Who would you who would you speak to on that end?
1: I fucking hate Dakota Johnson in this. <laughs> are the main character. Interesting. I think I think it was a bad casting choice. I don't think she can pull it off. I also think it's a weird choice to put Tilda Swinton in old man makeup and make her play multiple characters because it doesn't serve anything. Oh, it's not like
2: good at that. I lo- I, sh- I I don't know. I I'm I'm a big fan of
1: I I just thought it was like extremely distracting the whole time. It actively detracted from like the B plot for me.
0: Hmm,
2: interesting. That wasn't so much of a problem for me. I think she's a, she's a phenomenal actress. If she can play as many roles as possible, that'd be great. That's how I see it. I don't know. She plays Madame Blanc. Then she plays Helena Marcos, right? The head witch of this house.
1: My favorite casting choice was uh, Mia Goth. Oh, I think she did a really good job. Boy, do I
2: love Mia Goth! I just saw her recently in like Baby Cronenberg's new movie, Infinity Pool. Boy, she is incredible. She's a force of nature. And then, like obviously, there's those High West movies that are coming out now, like X and Pearl, and then I think the yeah. next one is Maxine. She's having a moment. I mean, she's she's just so talented. And the physical demands of these actresses. One of the things that I really loved about this movie was the dance choreography.
1: I wish there was more of it.
2: You wish there was more of it, and so, yeah. so uh, How do you mean?
1: I think I think it was a little light, and I think there was a lot of opportunity to be a little bit more symbolic through that. Mm. They were shot in in, an okay way. I think there were too many cuts in a lot of the sequences. So it became very sort of like honed in instead of a nice overview of like the visual work being done by the dancers and the choreographers, which is the same frustration I get whenever I go to see a Met Opera broadcast and the cameraman zooms in on like an east corner of the stage instead of like the entire production when there's a whole set and like visual design to it right one of the best scenes is Olga's death when we see that Susie has some kind of connection to the building such that when she dances she can cause direct harm yeah to other people in the building right and I think that's very effective because it's a very it's a nice show not tell moment Mm -hmm. and I think having a dance academy gives you a lot of really good opportunities for that that I wish they like used more heavily but you see like this beautiful fucking practical and special effects sequence of Olga being contorted in the way that Susie's dancing right and just being crushed it's gorgeous if you haven't seen the movie I can't really describe it to you it is one of my favorite gore scenes in a recent movie Honestly,
2: what I wrote down in my notes is like that is by far my favorite scene in the movie. It's just incredible. I mean,
1: it is a really good, just hey, we're showing you exactly how these mechanics work here type thing. Right. It's also very pivotal because that's when the witches realize that she has some. sort of connection to the building she's
2: got the juice right i love the idea of you know when people think of witches making spells or spellcraft in general i think most people think of some like warty old hag leaning over a bubbling cauldron but i really love that all the spellcraft in this is done by dance and through dance and physical movement and like the incantations are in the choreography I just that I thought that was a very cool way to interpret magic in this story and how it's.
1: Yeah. And then like the other big dance sequence is the folk dance. Yes. So meeting the people. Right. Which is like technically a reference to the early premonitions of like German nationalism prior to the Nazi party. And like I guess this is a good time to kind of briefly go over the political aspects here for anyone who's not super aware of it. Right. So essentially. Post World War II, you know, I'm, I'm assuming everyone is familiar with World War II and Nazism and everything, but in we had the. <laughs> in case you missed it. Um, uh, so, you know, obviously the Allies were trying to split up Germany. They kind of like split it up into four quadrants. And then as Cold War tensions rose, Britain, France, and America took over Western Germany. And then the USSR took over Eastern Germany. And Eventually, tensions kept building to the point where they closed down the borders between the two ends of Germany, and then eventually that culminated in the Berlin Wall, because East Germany was a a little bit more oppressive, so people kept trying to escape to West Germany. And, you know, at this time as well, in the 60s and 70s, we're getting a new generation of very anti-Nazi Germans, because essentially... you you all live in America, you know how pervasive Nazism is in like every walk of life. But essentially, when you have a horrible set of atrocities that takes a war to end, and was based off of a massive political ideology that took over a country, you're gonna have Nazis everywhere. You can go through the Nuremberg trials, you're not going to get all of them, you can't root every single one of them out of your society. So instead, they kind of just said, fuck it, we can't get all of every fucking Nazi. We're just going to start doing programs of denazification where like they'd force everyone who wanted a ration card to watch images from the camps, yeah. you know, and like didn't work at all because all they did would be like, turn their head and not watch. Right. Cause And like a a lot of people, same thing they did during the
2: war. You know what I mean?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But these were people who like still praised Hitler and still think that the camps and the murders and the mass genocides were like good for Germany. But it's because of this idea of the German people that like initially came up during the fucking unification under Prussia, basically, which created like an us versus them mentality that really laid the groundwork for hating non-german people. Yep. And so that is a part of what plays into the name of that dance. So I like it, it's not a politically charged dance. I w- I wouldn't really say it's just this movie is clearly trying to make connections to the political climate of the time and this is something within the plot that like does make a reference to it. Yeah. And then also there's references to the the Red Army faction throughout the the movie and i think it like opens with references to the red army faction and uh the german autumn Mm -hmm. which started in 1977 Mm -hmm. and essentially the red army faction was like a far left anti-nazi terrorist group they didn't do great things like their ideology was commendable because they were very anti-nazi but like they would kidnap and murder people which wasn't great um and they they did kill like 30 people yeah
2: We don't like that.
1: It was basically a group of young people who were really upset that the denazification of Germany wasn't working, Mm -hmm. because of course it wasn't, you know?
2: That's a tough thing to stamp out. I mean, we've been trying to do it for nearly 100 years, you know, and put out one fire and another starts up somewhere else. And it's just sad.
1: But yeah, so that's the quick and dirty social political context for anyone who might have been wondering about it and didn't actually like know that, but the German autumn is essentially the start of a lot of these terror attacks by the red army faction, in which they were like actively kidnapping people to try to demand the release of political prisoners from their faction.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then a lot of things went wrong and a lot of people died, Mm. uh, unfortunately, but that's, that's what it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Honestly, for me, I was a little confused as to why they really leaned into the political climate at the time because I wasn't really sure how that had to do anything with the other themes of the movie, like you were saying.
1: Yeah, you know, that's and that's like why I think they were trying to do a little bit too much with everything, mm-hmm. and then it, they kind it kind of plays into the B plot with old man makeup Tilda Swinton. Oh yeah, yeah the um, psychiatrist,
2: because right,
1: because the psychiatrist right lost his wife at a camp right and is is talking to chloe moretz's character at mm-hmm. some point who is supposed to be associated with the raf and then um, also is going crazy because of the things she's witnessing at the school and then he he's also a character that's like deeply interested in trying to understand all of the witches stuff right it's weird it's kind of like a whole grab bag It kind of culminates in this idea of like generational trauma. Like I was saying, Mm -hmm. he has a lot of guilt. I think my interpretation is he has a lot of guilt for losing his wife, has never gotten over the fact that he lost his wife. Understandable. If you're in love with somebody and you lose them in a horrible traumatic experience, I don't expect you to get over it. Right. Um, But then it gets twisted into this weird narrative of he's the reason that she got taken to a camp yes. even though it didn't really seem that way. And then it gets twisted into this idea that men are always the reason that women get hurt and die.
2: Well, I mean, in this case, it kind of was, right? She was airy in passing or something, and she wanted to run away. And he was like, no, 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 you'll be fine here.
1: <laughs> I don't remember that part of like his story. <laughs> no, I was, I was, again, not. this was a very confusing movie. For me, because of how much they were thrown at me. But right. it has like a ton of guilt, and Mother's Asperiorum has to like absolve him of, of his guilt. There's a pattern of mercy being equivalent to death in mm-hmm. this movie, which is a take, and I don't disagree. But I guess if we're talking about the greater context of World War II suffering, yeah, sure, <laughs> death is probably a, a great mercy for a lot of people, but it is. A little odd to me that like you would only investigate that idea of mercy when you're trying to talk about twenty different things. Yeah. Also, don't really love the fact that Dakota Johnson as Susie becomes Mother Superior. Yeah. Right. And I that, think and that's and that
2: weird. She, I, that, I was a little confused by that. Like, that
1: doesn't make sense at all. Like
2: that she was the reincarnation of some super witch, or no, the wit- No. no. That Like, of of Mother Suspiria, right? And she was there to, like, reclaim that house or something. I was just very confused by the end.
1: Yeah, but, like, even the creation of that awakening wasn't really anything that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. It it also, like, nullifies her her as a victim in anything that happens to her. And it makes her conspirator. Like, conspirator because she becomes, like, an active player in the witch's plans pretty early on which is very odd to me. I don't know. There's no real payoff for me about it. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like I, I find it very confusing in a way that I cannot process. And it's, it becomes like a very deus ex machina character where it's like, Oh, these people caused a bunch of suffering. I'm just going to go around and kill everyone. And now everything's fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That is interesting. (laughs) This was one of those movies where once we hit the one hour forty five minute mark, I was checking my watch like every yeah every ten minutes to be like I
1: was oh, also kind God. of checking the oh, time. God,
2: we're still like half an hour. Of this. <laughs>
1: and like, there's there's one theme that I think they really should have stuck to, and that's the one that they should have explored the most, huh. which is the idea that there's power in feminine sexuality, hmm. because that's one of the biggest themes that I see happen. Like costume design wise, the fact that there is literal supernatural forces that come from the movement of the body in Mm self-confidence. And there are a lot of sexual references during a lot of these choreographed scenes. I think at some point there's like simulated masturbation or something. There's a lot of references to women's sexuality, but generally feminine sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense with the concept of witches.
2: Totally. Like, for instance, the movie The Witch. I think the big theme there is all about breaking from a patriarchal system and embracing your womanhood and sexuality and liberation and all these things. I think that's a common thing with witch movies, right? It's the subversion of, so to speak, normal societal expectations of women and such.
1: Yeah. And, and the newer one definitely focuses more on the concept of this internal matriarchy of this school. Yeah.
2: I'm curious if, is Luca going to try and do the other two movies? Maybe? I don't know. Like, is he going to make his own mother trilogy? I hope not. <laughs>
1: I don't think so, because I don't think that was the point he was going for here.
2: Interesting, huh? Yeah, it's not like a direct remake, I guess, so why not?
1: But also, I fucking hated the music to this. It was grating. It made it really hard to watch.
2: It is so different than Goblin.
1: It was a bunch of shitty pop music. Yeah. And things that they clearly did not have to spend a lot of money on, but none of it matched the tone of anything. Mm. None of everything was quite jarring. It made me actively hate what i was watching at multiple times it also like severely undercut the visuals that were being depicted like the climax when fucking dakota johnson's just going through and killing people in a bloodbath in the final coven scene or whatever yeah the music in that was fucking awful and completely destroyed any sense of climax that was happening yeah and this was an amazon prime fucking production Amazon has so much money. Are you telling me they could not do something similar to Argento and Goblin and get, like, a fucking nice composer?
2: Fucking Daddy Bezos threw half a billion dollars at a Lord of the Rings show, and it didn't make it any better. (laughs) So, you know, throwing more money at something isn't necessarily going to save it from itself. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but, like, I'm just asking for a coherent composition in a soundtrack.
2: Sure, yeah, yeah.
1: And not shitty fucking cheap pop music that you can just put over things for the sake of having music. I will
2: say the music is done by Tom York. I'm somewhat of a Radiohead fan, not crazy about him. I saw Tom York just by himself in Philadelphia once and thought it was really cool. I'm a big fan of Johnny Greenberg. He's a good music score person as well.
1: Yeah, but a lot of it I don't think was done by him because I remember hearing things that just sounded like they picked something out of a music library and threw it over their shots. He might have done the more generic instrumentals, but I don't think he did all of it. Anyway, it was really grating, especially coming from the beauty that is Argento's filmography mixed with Goblin's composing.
2: Right. The first one is such a really intense and mesmerizing sensual experience all the colors are bright all the music is strange and fun and it's such a contrast to this movie where like the color palette is all like muted tones like maroon as opposed to like the dario argento bright red is literally like numbed down to this dull maroon
1: the original Suspiria is definitely more of a giallo Uh than a horror movie you know and honestly, I don't get a lot of sense of horror from the new one. I know they're really trying, but because I was so confused and because there's no sense of stakes mm-hmm. for me throughout this, like, sure. I, I just, like, there's no building of horror or tension.
2: Yeah, and it's not like I really, you know, to your point of like not a lot of stakes. I didn't really care what was happening <laughs> like the whole time. Yeah. Also something that just occurred to me, wasn't Susie Amish and what the fuck did that have to do with anything? Like I don't remember, I think she comes from I, in the beginning of the movie. It's like, I think they're wearing like the Amish garb. It's either that or they're Mennonite or something. And it's like, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? It's like every decision is, you know, I'm going to sound like a fucking idiot, but every decision is a decision, right? Every choice that this director is making has to have some backing to it. And I just, for so many of the choices he made from like the political backdrop to making her Amish, like, I just don't get it.
1: I think it needed a little bit more storyboarding for sure. Maybe. Or like just
2: someone in the room to be like, so what do you mean by this? And to like hold them to it. It's, you know,
1: I mean, if I had to take a stab at it, Mm -hmm. maybe the symbolization of sexual repression of sexual freedom, if we're going back to like feminine sexuality.
2: I mean, totally. Yeah. The Amish, I think they still like have sex through a hole in a sheet. So (laughs) that would, uh, that would be fair. Of the two movies, I'd say, I enjoy the first one a hell of a lot more. As with most remakes and reboots and everything, my initial reaction to hearing about these things is, why? (laughs) And that was Dario Argento's comment on when he heard his work was being remade. Is like, If you're not going to shoot it bit for bit, then is it really the same thing? So why even call it Suspiria? I don't know. I wish people would just spend their time and money making new interesting things. (laughs) Sorry, that's just me wishing someone would buy my script. (laughs) You know,
1: looking back at my notes, I think one of my one of the things I really had trouble with was this heavy theme of sex magic Mm -hmm. being tied into generational trauma and fucking Auschwitz. And I was like, I don't understand how this gap is being bridged. What is the
2: thread here that ties this all together? I'm missing it. I'd love to like have the opportunity to sit down with this director and be like, can you please just explain shit to me? What am I missing here? I want to enjoy this movie. I really do. I really love Mia Goth. That scene where she breaks her leg is, if there's one thing I can't stand seeing in a movie, it's a bone breaking through skin. And that really got me.
1: That was good. And they had like a really big special effects team. So I could not figure out who was doing a lot of the practical effects. Yeah. I do enjoy... The fact that the newer one tried to do a lot more story building, mm-hmm. but I do prefer every artistic choice from Argento much more. 100%. So if somebody, if somebody can like find a middle ground between these two, I think we'd have the perfect film.
2: Totally. I'm, I'm going to plug a movie in right now. My I'm, I'm going to recommend it to you too, because I don't know if you've seen it yet. I saw it a few nights ago and it made me think of this movie because it's a, it's a movie about witchcraft. It's called Hwasera, the Bone Woman. Have you heard about this movie?
1: Only because I read an email from you recently.
2: Oh my God. It is amazing. It is amazing. And I know this, is, <laughs> I'm I have to do this because I don't know. I'm trying to get this movie out to as many people. And I know not a lot of people listen to this, but if you do listen to this, please go see this movie. It's a Mexican folk horror movie about this woman who becomes pregnant and her struggles with pregnancy and the monsters we create by not being our true selves and her confronting the idea that maybe she doesn't want to be a mother at all.
1: That sounds good. I'll
2: have to to watch it. It's wonderful. I think you'd love it.
1: Honestly, at this point, I would even say The Craft is a fucking better coherent plot line for how magic corrupts femininity and women and shit. I
2: have never seen the
1: craft. At least the plot is a little bit easier to understand and it's more coherent than the newer Suspiria. And if anyone listening really honed in on something and got it, good on you. I was way too overwhelmed watching it.
2: Yeah, likewise. And also just the runtime. I know I said this before about Terrifier 2, but, like, it's just... Oh, my God. You know, you know... PTSD, dude. (laughs) It's, like, two and a half hours. It's, like, you must cut that. (laughs) I don't know. There's
1: a lot less happening in Terrifier 2. They needed to split Suspiria into, like, multiple movies. And I really think they just needed to, like take a basis in what fundamental theme they wanted to really go after and analyze. Right. And then cement that and then bridge the gap in a sequel and then further explore whatever they want to explore, whether that be the sociopolitical climate, whether that be the role that men play in traumatizing women, whatever. But the B-plot... Was a distraction, totally. I think, for what a lot of the shots were. Yeah. And I don't think adding it did a lot. And I don't really think the way that Susie's character was expressed made a lot of sense. So, yeah. It is what it is. Um,
2: it is what it is. Yeah, I don't know. Not my favorite movie. That's what I'll say.
1: I was like emotionally affected. Because I do think they had good writing. I think there's a good writer somewhere here. I think the writer is just really confused and really disorganized and has a little bit of an ADHD take on writing scripts and just needs to be a little bit more focused.
2: What's interesting, I actually just looked at this dude's Wikipedia page, and he also did the loose adaptation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It was Daniel Craig and what was her name? Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig in this very weird take on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So maybe that's this guy's M.O.
1: I don't think it's bad. I think it just needs to be a little bit honed. That's it.
2: Sure. Oh, he also did Bones and All, which came out this past year. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it. I hear it's pretty good. Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell is a couple young
1: girls. Yeah, My, my friend watched it and said that they thought it was like all right
2: gotcha but well very cool hocus pocus witchcraft yay (laughs) i'm glad i watched these two movies back to back because i hadn't done that before
1: i didn't at all i watched a restoration on the big screen of suspiria and then decided to watch the newer one like a week later
2: oh nice yeah yeah the first one's just a better experience for me
1: yeah no i agree and not plot-wise. If you're somebody who, like, truly wants more of a story, like, you might as well just watch the new one.
2: It's it's almost like the new one forgot what filmmaking is really about, which is the blending of sight and sound and narrative. Yeah. You know? And it just completely drops.
1: Yeah, it was very jarring. It's a jarring movie. Actually, honestly, if you want a little bit more context to Suspiria... I would recommend watching the trilogy out of order and starting with Inferno and then going to Suspiria and then just skip Mother of Tears because I don't think it really adds anything.
2: (laughs) Okay. So you would say Inferno first, then Suspiria. How come?
1: Because Inferno does a lot of exposition compared to Suspiria.
2: Oh, gotcha. For all like the lore stuff of mothers and such. Yeah,
1: because then you'll get a little bit more context of the story. And maybe it'll make a little bit more sense if you're not really into the abstract art film energy.
2: Uh Um,
1: Which, nope, not everyone is. That's fine.
2: Yeah. When it comes to like horror and such, I'm a big proponent of the less you tell me, the better. To a point. To an extent, like I'm not trying to be like completely lost in the woods here without a compass. Yeah. But the unknown to me is way more. I hate having things being overexplained to me, you know, in a movie. It, 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 you know, so you
1: don't like saw his little montages of exposition.
2: Oh my God. Never. I just, you know, it's just like let me draw the lines here and like work my imagination. I don't need you to like show me the zipper on the back of the monster's costume and like that's root funny. with all your hocus pocus jibber jab. I don't know.
1: But again, Suspiria is more of a giallo than like a true horror film. So that's not something you've really delved into before. Just be a little bit more aware of that. It's more of a thriller than like pure horror. Also, I would describe the mindset I would suggest going into Suspiria, if you've not watched it yet, would be a really cool visual accompaniment to a really good album by Goblin.
2: <laughs> that is, uh, I love that. Yeah.
1: A really long music video. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That is very fun. I, that's a good way to promote it, honestly, because that uh, I really wish I'd gone and seen Goblin live. <laughs> I wish I. would Well,
1: it's like Suspiria by Goblin is such an inherent quality to like what the movie is. Argento and Goblin had to work together to make this such a classic. Yeah, but yeah, you just you can't take them apart, which is why I was like so disappointed by the lack of musical planning in the newest one, because I think it's just it's so important for building emotion and setting tone and like creating totally. a coherent sense
2: music is arguably one of the most important things for a horror movie so many horror movies that come to my mind that are like defined by their soundtrack obviously we've covered psycho we've covering this suspiria right now the soundtrack to the shining is one of a kind and you know
1: killer clowns from outer space
2: john, john carpenter doing the theme for halloween You know, it's so important. And the director of this new movie seems to have hired a fancy name and the fancy name maybe didn't do the homework. I don't know.
1: Which is why we got to learn from Argento and just go with a no name from the city you're filming in.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: Turn them big. You'll sell four million records.
2: Four million.
1: Of a soundtrack, man. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's nuts.
2: I'm looking at the performance of the new movie. I mean, from a box office standpoint, I really doubt they're going to do the other two now.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think they ever were going to. It seemed like, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like that.
2: The budget was $20 million, which honestly is lower than I expected. And the box office was 7.9. So, yeah, didn't do as well as I think they'd hoped. I guess it's like an art house movie. Would you call this an art house movie? The remake? The new one? Yeah. Or maybe I don't it has an really art house sensibility. No,
1: because it just feels like the same energy of like most modern horror mm-hmm. to me.
2: Let's see. Audience reviews. Love it. Doomed to fail in cinema. I always wonder the words people use to describe movies, right? It's like you say movie, you say film, or you say cinema. And cinema is the one I hear the least. And I wonder where that cut I don't know. I wonder why people choose to say that. Tulsa Swinton? That's not her name. <laughs>
1: um, like, it's, just, it's just not her name. Oh, man. The first user review on IMDb for the new one mm-hmm. is... Too long, too slow, and too far up its own ass. (laughs) I
2: don't disagree with that. (laughs) I wouldn't maybe put it so bluntly, but...
1: This person has written... In fact, this version of Suspiria departs from everything that made Dario Argento's horror classic unique and is a dull, dismal, and divisive remake that's exhausting, frustrating, and one hell of a slog.
2: Damn. Pretentious, gross. I will say, I'm, like, scrolling by, like... 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10s from people, yeah. which is, you know, great. I'm glad people enjoyed this movie. That's, you know, cool. But I'm way more interested in what people have the shit, shit on it for. Convoluted mess, confusing, slow, and a true chore. We're not really selling this movie whatsoever, but I hope we are selling it. I
0: don't think it's bad.
2: I would highly recommend the original to everybody. I would not recommend this to everybody, but I know some people who would like it.
1: Yeah, a lot of people are calling it, like, pretentious. That's a recurring theme I'm getting. And I think this just is other people being frustrated at the idea that they're trying to bring too much in. Yeah. I don't think it's that bad. Like, they were all good ideas. They're just not fleshed out. That's the issue.
2: Very true. Very true.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the only funny one. (laughs) Everything else is just very angry. (laughs) Let's see if we can find some funny ones for the original too, before we bounce. The
2: ones I'm looking at are all, it's like on the other one, on the 2018 version, you're looking at the reviews and it's either people are like, I mean, it was already, I knew it was a very divisive movie, but you can just see it in like the viewer reviews. It's like nines and tens or ones to threes. And that's it. That's all. Whereas when I'm looking at the user reviews for the original, people are giving it either a middling six. Or a ten, six to 10, that's it.
1: Yeah, it's going to come down to personal taste, right? Like People who don't understand the energy of an opera or a ballet, because that's, again, what I feel the original is closest to, Uh aren't going to be entertained by the overall product. They're going to focus on the really shitty plot building, the shitty acting, the shitty dialogue. It's not good, but it's not there to really be the star of the show. On the other hand, the newer one does have somewhat better dialogue and some really shining examples of dialogue in some points and some of the cast is good. I don't know what happened with direction and personal acting styles or whatever, but you know, I really like Tilda Swinton. I really like Mia Goth. I think they did really good jobs. And there's more of a coherent plot because that's the style of this writer and director. Mm -hmm. They had a plan. They wanted to make it a little bit more set in reality. That's fine. That's but that's like essentially the division. But I do think that while the original Suspiria is more in line with the original energy of Thomas De Quincey's writing. Uh I do think that the newer one tries really hard to lay into the actual definitions of the mothers, if that makes sense. Sure. The writer clearly has some knowledge of Thomas De Quincey's writing, but does not share the hypnotic elements of his writing and just wanted to, I think they lean more into the power aspect of the sorrows. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, plays into their desire to talk about feminine power, feminine sexuality, which again, I think was a little bit underdeveloped given the lack of focus in the film right but yeah there's some good gore but it wasn't very effective because again i didn't feel like there were any stakes to any character or any plot point
2: except for that one scene right when olga's being contorted and crying.
1: yeah and that was great i think we would agree that's probably our favorite part of the movie
2: totally hundred percent.
1: And it sucks that it happened so early on because I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And then I was so disappointed following that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that is very early in the movie. That is right. Um, And
1: that is the only part of the film that I would label as something that like truly felt horror. You know, mm -hmm. that was a really cool supernatural horror moment. Everything else was just like middling. Yeah. But yeah, no, this was a fun opportunity to revisit Argento's classic, and I had not yet watched Suspiria, but I'm the newer one, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah. And it's great to get to talk to you again, and hopefully we can get back into a groove.
2: Oh, I'd love to. That'd be great. I mean, I'm ready to do many episodes, whatever you Oh, like.
1: I'm so close to finishing Night of the Hunter, the book.
2: Great. Then, so,
1: I hate it. I hate it so much, though.
2: Oh, you hate the book? <laughs>
1: The fucking formatting is really bad. Uh, it's so hard for me to get through. I have to reread so much. Oh no,
2: I'm sorry. It's okay. It'll be done soon. Well, you know what? At least the movie is really fucking good. Yeah, know?
1: yeah. My reward is going to be the movie. Great. <laughs> All right. I'll see you soon.
2: All right. Catch you later, Maya. Bye. Bye. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at InfiniteHorrorsMagazine.com. You can get the newsstand edition also at ExaltedFuneral.com. And be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast. Find us online at Infinite Horrors Magazine and at Infinite Worlds Magazine or InfiniteHorrorsMagazine.com and InfiniteWorldsMagazine.com. You can reach out to me personally on Instagram at HarSamW.
1: And you can find me on Instagram at heavy
2: metal fruit underscored. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.